exactly who you are and your good body of work you did mention you just wanted to go over you know your last book we could talk a little bit about that and help promote it and get some sales out of it you know for anyone who doesn't know so let's let's talk about your last book first I guess unless you had any other also idea no that's that's fine that's fine we can talk about the book and the absence of any publicity or any review about the book and what some of your or any of your listeners or even you could do because there is a banned book program that's run by a, by a Canadian who is actually uh, working in America with MSNBC. His name is Ali, A-L-I, Felshi, V-E-L-S-H-I. And he runs a program called the Banned Book Club. And uh, this this book would fit right in with his with his uh, format, but uh, so if someone wanted to send it on to him with a rec- recommendation, I don't think I should do it. But if someone else is willing to do it, that would be that would be very helpful. So, to start off with, if you have the books you've written, of course you're known you're known for the Martin Luther King case, I think, but you're also known for your work you did for trying to release Sirhan Sirhan. That has yeah. been an ongoing, ongoing. It's just a shame that once again, when he saw light, the governor stepped in, and then they they overturned the. I'm sure you've heard all about it. He's still yes, in jail. Yes, yes, there's no question about that. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be uh, be with you on your program, Len. I've admired your work and your diligence, which has continued for a number of years, and you are, are familiar with my work. I've spent I spent uh, about 40 years on the King case alone, and uh, that was a, a labor of commitment of mine because I was a contributor to Martin's assassination. In that, I when I got back from Vietnam and wrote an article in Ramp, Ramparts magazine called "The Children of Vietnam," he read it was so moved by it, he asked to meet with me in the last year of his life. And uh, I opened my files to him and uh, 
and became uh, close close to him during that last year. But uh, he was shocked and in tears at one point when he saw the photographs of what was happening to the civilian population and particularly the children of Vietnam. So um, when he came out against the war formally at the Riverside Church on April 4, 1967, one year before he was actually assassinated, that signed his death warrant, frankly. It's one thing being a civil rights leader. It's another now starting to get into war crimes committed by his government and social economic issues which flowed all as all as, as a piece. So uh, when they assassinated him in uh, April 4, 1968, I actually thought for a number of years that they had the right, the right guy, James Earl Ray, as the assassin. And then in about 1977 or so, Abernathy asked me to arrange a meeting with Ray at his prison in Brushy Mountain, prison in Tennessee. Uh, and I was uh, surprised. I said to Ralph, what do you do? You don't you think they have the right guy? And he said, well, there are some things I'd like him to answer. And I'd be very comfortable if you would arrange a meeting and if you would interrogate him in front of me about some of the issues. So I agreed to do that. It took me about six, seven months to adequately prepare. And uh, in August of 19, my goodness, I guess it was 1978 in August, we went to the prison and I conducted a grueling five-hour interrogation of Ray. Present at that meeting was Jim Lawson, who was very close to Martin, and who had uh, actually been responsible for bringing Martin to to uh, Memphis on behalf of the, the garbage workers. Jim Lawson, myself, Abernathy. I brought a body language psychiatrist specialist, Howard Barons from Harvard, just to study Ray's bodily movements when I put him under a lot of pressure, which I did. Well, in the course of that meeting, and also was attended by Ray's lawyer at the time, Mark Lane. Mark had uh, been very willing to set up this meeting. So when we, when we finished the session with James, we met briefly outside the prison, and everyone in that room agreed that James was not the shooter who killed Martin Luther King. Now, we didn't know what role he played, but, but he was clearly not the shooter. He convinced everyone of that. So that was in 78, and uh, I raised a number of issues that concerned me and caused me to start making regular trips into Memphis, Tennessee, and to hook up with Wayne Chastain, a local lawyer who was sympathetic to the cause. And we eventually came away with increasing amounts of evidence that that Ray uh, was not guilty of the crime. Now, he, he continually asked me to represent him, and I refused for 10 years to represent him because I said to him very candidly, James, I have to be convinced that you had no role to play. We, we have agreed that you are not the shooter who fired the bullet, 
but we have a lot of concerns about what role you might have played. And I need time to satisfy myself with respect to that. Well, I became James's lawyer, finally, Mark Trapper, uh, off the scene. I became James's lawyer, finally, in 1987-88. And I, I represented him in local, state, and courts, and we went up to the Supreme, the Supreme Court with, uh, with motions. And we failed every step of the way. And uh, the more evidence I dug up, the more convinced I became that James was innocent. That led to uh, a television trial, which you and your listeners may have been aware of, uh, was uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King. It was was a program sponsored by HBO and Thames Television. And that resulted in my having additional funds to uh, further investigate the case. What happened um, in the course of that beginning was we, I, I started, I was living in the Northeast, living in, uh, in New England at the time, and my family and I became, I had little children then, Sean, Tara, and Liam were all young, and the threats started mounting against all of us. I put a guy, two guys in duck blind across the street, kept a watch on us in the house. A guy regularly patrolled the beach. We lived on the water, patrolled the beach up and down. So it was very clear that we were being watched. And I put up with that for a period of time. And then one day a phone call came through, was answered by my son, Sean who at the time was about four years old, I believe, and and he received a threat that they were going to kill his father uh, because of his work on the King case. That was all too much, so I then moved the family to England and um, took on a position. I student, a visiting scholar position at uh, at Cambridge University. We I moved the family, raised the family in Cambridge. But it, it, it cost me with the family because I ended up having to commute back and forth to the States as we, to continue the work. So I was an absentee father for, I'm afraid, too much of the lives of the young children. In addition to having to earn a living, I was immersed in the case. So it went on. We, um, we did the television trial. Hickman Ewing, a former U.S. attorney, uh, was the prosecutor on the other side. I mounted the defense. The, the trial went forward, and to everyone's surprise, the jury took seven and a half hours to find James O'Reilly not guilty. So that was that was a, a victory of sorts, but of course it was not officially recognized, and we uh, we then had to build on what we what evidence was was mounting. James ended up dying in 1998, and uh, it was at that point in time that I was uh, came closer and closer to Coretta King and the King family. And they uh, were very much inclined for a lawsuit to begin, a, a civil action against 
one or another of the people whom we had identified as being a, a part of the, the conspiracy to kill Dr. King. So we we tried that case in 1999, and it was a case that went on for 30 days, 70 witnesses, aired all of the, the evidence that we had unco uncovered up to that point in time. And the, a, a jury found one Lloyd Jowers, uh, who was a defendant in the case and a part of the conspiracy, found him uh, guilty of the involvement in in the assassination. Now, in the course of this work, I wrote three books. Well, I wrote two. The first was the book called Orders to Kill, which laid out everything that we knew up until about 1992-1993. Then a second book following the trial called An Act of State, which really just was the historical review of the trial and what the jury found and so forth so forth the main book on the case did not come forward for a number of years but the investigation continued the final book and i guess it was 1917 1918 came out it was called the uh the um plot to kill King, and that laid out the whole story and all the information that, and evidence that we were able to gather at the time. And it's, it's, it's a very sad story, and it's a story that the truth of which has never really been known by the American people or the people of the world, uh, but it reveals how Martin King was really killed who killed him, how he was killed, and how it was covered up for many, many years. The, the plot to kill King documents quite convincingly how he was how he was how he was shot from the bushes behind Jim's grill, which was a barn grill owned by Lloyd Jowers, who participated for a fairly large sum of money in the killing. And the shot was fired by a, a number two police shooter, police officer named Strauser, Frank Strauser, S-T-R-A-U-S-S-E-R. -S -S he fired from the bushes. His spotter was Another Memphis police officer was also a very good shot, but in this case he was just a spotter named Earl Clark, Lieutenant Earl Clark. After Strauser shot Martin King and he was hit in the head and the face, and the, the bullet went down through his, his side of his face and nicked his spine, uh, Clark jumped down over the wall, ran up to a waiting police car the next block, took off. Strauser headed back out uh, away from the scene. Jowers took the gun from him, 
brought it inside the back door of his grill where he was met by his mistress, Betty Spates, who had just entered her a little while earlier through the front door of the grill on Main Street and was looking for Lloyd and went through into the kitchen, heard the shot. And she was out the back door when Lloyd came running in with a still-smoking rifle and asked her plaintively, you would never do anything to hurt me, Betty, would you? She said, no, of course, Lloyd, I wouldn't. He broke down the gun, wrapped it up in a, in a cloth, and went forward into the main area of the grill and put it on a shelf below the bar where it was it would be picked up later on by... Uh, others and another in the conspiracy. So that was that was how Martin was hit. He was taken immediately to St. Joseph's Hospital, and they started working on him in the emergency room of the of the hospital. And he was still alive, uh, but it, it, it is quite possible that he would have died from from the wound. But he didn't. At that point, he was alive. Into the room at one point came the head of neurosurgery in the hospital, Dr. Breen, B-R-E-E-N, Bland, B-L-A-N-D. And he was accompanied by two men in suits. When they came into the room, they saw the team, the medical team working on Martin, and they said to them, uh, stop working on him. Bland said, stop working on that nigger and let him die. And one of the doctors said we should get him up to the operating room for emergency surgery. And Bland said, no, forget about that. Now all of you leave the room. Every one of you get out. And he threw them all out of the room. The last person to leave the room was a woman who was a uh, neurological nurse. And um, as she was going out the door, she heard the sound of spitting turned around. And she saw the three of them, blonde and the two men in suits, spit on the prone body of Martin King on a hospital bed, hospital cot, where they had been working on him. Then that caught her attention, and as she was going through the, the door, opened the door and going out, she looked, and she saw blonde take a pillow from under Martin's head and put it over his face and suffocate him. And that's how Martin King was actually killed. He was murdered finally that way. Although, as I said, he might well have, have uh, died from his wound. So that, that information and that evidence is put forward, that statement, is put forward. The neurological nurse was kept uh, along with the staff of the, of the hospital overnight, allowed home the next morning, and the next morning she called her family together and she told them the story. Now from 1968 to about 19, well, well into, well, well, well after the trial that we had, her son, who was president at that meeting, came forward under oath in deposition and told us her story, what she told the family, and how he died. 
So that that is, was very convincing to all of us who heard him, because he was not a well man at the time. So the two points that uh, the politics, the plus the the, uh, the 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 final book, the plot to kill King, uh, evidence is that is the most critical one in terms of the death. But beyond that, Martin's room was changed. He was supposed to be in room 202, which was a ground floor sheltered room, and it was changed. And for years, we didn't know who or why the room was changed. But eventually, we found out that Bailey, the manager of the hotel, and his wife changed the room and put Martin and Ralph Abernathy just before they arrived in room 306. That's where they were going. That's where they were going to stay. Room 306 was a balcony room, and we learned that that request was made by Jesse Jackson to uh, change Martin's room to give him a give him a balcony room overlooked a, a swimming pool and a parking lot and made him an ideal target. Now, that's, that was a shock to all of us, that, but I became convinced that it was Jesse on the basis, again, of sworn testimony of the son of the Dixie Mafia, Adkins Lee, wife, who uh, was asked to call and make arrangements for Jesse to have the room changed. So that's all laid out in the, in the plot to kill King. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us, really. Jesse goes back to South Carolina and Strom Thurmond, who, one of the invaders, that was a militant group in, in Memphis, told me he saw a letter from Thurmond to Richard Daly, who was mayor of Chicago, when Jesse moved to Chicago. And the letter simply stated, take care of this boy, he's one of ours. And uh, it was an introduction to Daly of how Jesse might be useful in other matters and was tied up with this, this Dixie Mafia crowd. Dixie Mafia crowd was organized as we went on and got evidence of witnesses who were present at meetings by J. Edgar Hoover, who sent his number to Clyde Tolson, regularly sent Tolson into Memphis with envelopes of instructions and money. And the people who received the money were people like Reverend Billy Kyles, who was up on the balcony at the time Martin was killed, and who tried, at whose house uh, Martin was to have a barbecue meal that night and who knocked on the door to hurry him out of the room and then walked 50 to 75 feet down the balcony away from where Martin came out. So these, they, they were well infiltrated. They had uh, these instructions from Hoover carried by Clyde Tolson. And I have eyewitness, eyewitness deposition from the son of the leader of the mafia. A Dixie Mafia group who had died actually he organized everything but he had died before the, the actual killing the Atkins family or a local Dixie Mafia group that was used by Hoover for various purposes and evil, evil intentions in that area 
often directly through someone like Tolson, who was who was number two on a regular basis, and Carlos Marcello, of course, who was the mafia boss in that part of the country, and who did visit Memphis before the killing, and who knew everything that was going on. So that that's the story of the the plot to kill King. I mean, that's uh, the book. It goes into great detail. I put all of the depositions, all of the evidence in the book so that what I'm saying is verified by statements under oath and usually by eyewitnesses. So it's it's been pretty well established. But it's such a scary story and because uh, it involves Jackson as well. It uh, has been effectively not reviewed, not not done much in the way of promotion because it was a publishing, a small publishing house called Sky Horse Publishing that didn't have the money to promote it. So as I mentioned to you earlier, it, it is, that truth has never, that, that you're now airing, has never been disseminated in any way. But there is a fellow on MSNBC, Len, who is a Canadian by birth, and who is a, uh, an anchor on MSNBC called Ali 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 Velshi V E L S H I, and he runs a program on MSNBC in New York called the Brand Book Club. He has a he puts on television books that have not been reviewed that that are for one reason or another have been unknown and kept in the dark. And, you know, as uh, Martin King was fond of saying, that the darkness of evil cannot be eliminated, illuminated by more darkness, but only light can bring forth the truth and fair light on, on evil deeds such as this one. So if any of your listeners are inclined, they could push uh, Velshi, Although, I don't know if it may be too controversial for him and NBC to air this book, The the, the, the Plot to Kill King, on that program, because it certainly has not been reviewed, has been banned everywhere, and the story just just exists. And the people of the United States and the people of the world are still largely of the opinion, in my view, that uh, James Earl Ray was the lone gunman that shot Martin Luther King and killed him, which, of course, was not true. The King family has had the closure of a trial, but they didn't get, they didn't have this evidence because it didn't come to me until I was well beyond the trial and in, involved in preparing this final book. Right, but even so what you that, did have at the trial, that jury said there was something wrong and that James Earl Ray was not the man responsible for everything. And you have three books, as you mentioned, Active State, Orders to Kill, and The Plot to Kill King. And The Plot to Kill King is the last one that we'd try to help get some promotion for. Or if, if you know people listening to this are interested, please purchase it. We'll make links to all of them. Well, I'd be grateful if you would. I don't know if you can have a, uh, the ability to make a dent in it, but this is the kind of book that they don't want to... They don't, the corporate rulers of America 
and who dominate these issues and who want to keep stability on, on a level plane don't want the people to read, don't want the people to know that they're government. But anyone who's familiar with J. Edgar Hoover and his, his life's work should not be surprised that it was him who and his bureau who undertook this assassination with, by all means, the knowledge of the President of the United States at the time, Lyndon Johnson. That was the nature of uh, the nature of the of the plot. And that, the sixties, as you know, Len, were a period of major assassinations and uh, springing up of massive disinformation uh, in every instance of this sort. So anything you can do or any of your listeners can do or are interested in doing the getting this truth out that it's contained in the plot to kill King and my work, I uh, would be grateful. I've concluded the case. I've satisfied the truth in terms of what really happened to my dear friend Martin King whom they took from the scene. It's a real uncomfortable truth. Yes, that's right. And I became involved in 2007 with the defense of of Suran Suran, who, after his first lawyer died, he had briefed me, and I took on that case and struggled with with the facts in that case. I've not written a book on it, but I, without any doubt, have satisfied myself, as have some members of the Kennedy family, that Sirhan was not the shooter. He was never closer than five, six feet in front of Kennedy, and Bob Kennedy was shot from behind, powder burn range against his back and through his right ear by a lone assassin who was, again, hired specifically to get rid of Senator Kennedy, who would have become Robert Kennedy would have become president. I got involved in that one. I had I had been Bob Kennedy's citizens chairman in Westchester County, New York, when he ran for the uh, for the Senate in 1964. So I had a feeling for the Kennedys, Kennedy family, and for Bob Kennedy. So I struggled with that one number of appearances, as you know. Uh, eventually. We got a, a, a parole verdict from a parole board after many years, and the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, turned it down, largely because, in my view, the majority of the, Bob's children and his widow, Ethel, in the, acting in what they thought was their best uh, faith for Bob's memory, opposed the parole. So even to this day, Sirhan sits in prison. And I've had to effectively take a bad seat because I've had bad health. Uh, I've been really unable to travel much to the West Coast in a number of years. But there still is a struggle going on there, and uh, there is a habeas petition that's pending, although I guess we don't have much hope that Sirhan will not die in prison. I think that's probably what will happen. I know they tried to kill James a couple of times in prison, when I represented him. Yeah, Saran had to be moved once, I think, too, as well. Yes, they, they, they moved him from one prison to another. But 
if the struggle does not amount to anything serious in terms of bringing out the truth, they'll just let them rot and die in prison. It's what they do. Yeah. So, so that's that's the history of uh, my work on the King case and, to an extent, the work on, on Sirhan. I do have a question about another case you worked on. Sure. And it is, if you could recount your experience with Benazir Bhutto, the ex-Prime Minister of Pakistan. Oh, yeah. Right, because she got in place after the dictator uh, Zia was removed and there's speculation that the CIA had her removed. And then after Zia Bhutto became the PM, and it's uh, an interesting period. Can you discuss anything yeah. of that era? Well, I came to know Bibi, as we called her, Benazir. We came quite close to her when she she had fled to London. She, when she came to London after... Uh, being released from house arrest for quite a period of time. And when I met with her the last time in in London, she surprised me but told me that she was going to return to Pakistan. I knew I know Pakistan and spent quite a bit of time in Pakistan, as has my son Shaw. We had uh, various litigation against the corrupt government there. And when she told me she was going to move there and she was likely to uh, to marry, the guy she was going to marry was a well-known gunrunner and drug dealer. But he was powerful and uh, and she had to be married in order to eventually move into the, the premiership and become prime minister, which she did. And I warned her about going back. I said, if you disappoint the people who are now apparently sponsoring you if you become uh, an inconvenience to them and their plans they will take you out you understand that well she she understood it but she didn't really think that they would do it i became involved with her because i was her father's last lawyer on appeal Puto was in prison under zia and uh, i was moving very hard to get him uh, released. And Zia just took him out and hung him one day to, to frustrate our opinion, our efforts in that respect. So Peavy went back to Pakistan. And while I've been in touch with people who are in the know and, and in terms of power structure in Pakistan. I've not returned, but I've been I've been advised that she was killed. She was assassinated. She was assassinated in Lahore while she was riding in a car. The assassin was her husband, who himself became president of Pakistan. Eventually, he's done time in prison himself, but he received a phone call from one of her bodyguards up to I was told. And he told the bodyguard, tell her to stand up. She's not she's not standing up. And the bodyguard told her to stand up so she was capable of being shot from within the car where she was. She was killed. It's a shame. She was a strong, loyal Pakistani public servant who was determined to fulfill her father's dream for making Pakistan a democratic country. And um, her life was cut short, and she was 
assassinated him. That is the ultimate tool that they use, Len. It's assassination. If they can discredit a, a leader or a potential leader by rendering him or her unemployed, by intimidating them, by using any other means necessary, they do it. If they can't, and the necessary target continues to be an inconvenience and an embarrassment, then assassination is the ultimate tool. And we have seen that in America, of course, in the 60s with uh, Malcolm X, in addition to Martin, Malcolm X, Bob Kennedy, in, in particular, and a number of local leaders who were rising to the fore to take on the reins of leadership. So the 60s were a time of assassination, but they didn't stop there. And I'm more and more convinced that I made the right decision in moving my family to England and raising the children there because my work got to a point where, whether as is evidenced by the the plot to kill King revelations, that if I continued, they they would never have been able to stop me short of assassination. I had enough threats and enough bullying, enough running off the road and and all the rest of the stuff that goes with the kind of work that uh, I've been involved in to understand that I have been most fortunate in in making that decision to move that first family away, far away from the possible dangers. So yes, that's the story of Bibi Bhutto, Benazir Bhutto a woman whom I knew was close to, toward the end, and only because I had really a lot of involvement with her father in an effort to try to free him. And uh, I suppose that those efforts were in vain and maybe even contributed to the killing. So that's, that's that story as And, and well. like you're saying, that that's the, the last case... John Perkins said they send in the jackals. If they can't do character assassination, they remove you. So when they removed her as a threat, even her her dad, you mentioned they just took him out and hung him. The previous prime minister, is is the name Zia? That's the CIA. Zia Zia was president. And Zia Zia was really the reason I initially became involved in Pakistan because he was surrounded by a lot of corruption that he couldn't overcome and he wanted the people who were involved in the in the taking of money and the corrupt acts, the undermining of what he wanted to uh, accomplish. He wanted them out of government, so he, uh, I went in as a prosecutor, effectively, outside. And uh, that wasn't Zia. Zia was a, was a general in the army who took control of the country. But... Uh, and continued the, the corruption. I imagine to this day I've been away from the Pakistani scene to some extent, although we have some litigation that still goes on there. It's a sad tale because it, it involves very often people who get sucked into government service who want to do the best thing for their country. And it's not just there, it's in America as well, of course. And... Uh, if they can be 
marginalized in one way or another. They are, and they don't go very far. And you have them outside of politics. You have people like Pete Seeger, who was one of my heroes and very fond of Pete over the years. They were able to silence Pete and his his calls for liberty and freedom by banning him and banning his music and banning the songs that he wrote. And that kept him alive, but it's only after he died a natural death that uh, his music is starting to make a, a comeback. And his songs are well-known all over the world now. His folk music is all over the world. So he stayed alive, was true to a purpose, but never really had much of an impact on the public life of the United States, except amongst people like me and movement people who recognize his value to the society and the culture. So that's that's the history of it. Yeah. Now, also, you spent some time with uh, Chavez, is that correct? Yes, I was very close to Hugo Chavez, in fact. Uh, Hugo and I were like brothers. He called me his brother. At one point, in the, uh, I spent a lot of time in Venezuela on his behalf and with him. And he, I traveled with Hugo. I have photographs, and he and I traveling together. We traveled the world. We traveled to Russia, Saudi Arabia, a lot of places, Spain. And I was very close to Hugo, to Hugo Chavez very close to him. He offered me the foreign ministry in his government at one point when he was being so frustrated. But I didn't. I wouldn't take it because I would have had to move to Caracas. That was not something I was willing to do. I visited it enough, but to go there to live would have, would have, would have to me, have been unthinkable. I would have been a wide-open target in any event as an American. Uh an American in opposition to the plutocrats of Venezuela who were being very well taken care of, as was the military at that time, very well taken care of by American intelligence. That's another one that I never really looked deeply in. He died, as you know, in in Cuba. He was... He contracted a disease and he died. I believe that he was assassinated just because that was the only way they could get rid of him. People of Venezuela loved him. And uh, he would have been reelected again and again. He made a mistake by choosing Maduro as his number two um, because he thought he was an. And he, and, and he was. Maduro was a decent and honest man, bus driver. And uh, he thought that he could groom him, and he was he had a good following locally, and he, he didn't realize the extent to which the military would take him out. I remember having lunch with him day after day, and his meals were served. And the presidential palace was served by a particular military officer who was a general. And in reflection over the years, I think 
they were slowly poisoning him. And that was the only way that they could get rid of him with any degree of of discretion. But he was a good man, a decent man. His ego was was very strong, of course. And he was determined to control the corruption and maximize the freedom and liberty and independence of the Venezuelan people. And was willing to, to do what had to be done legally in order to accomplish that. But that, of course, was contrary to a lot of the the interests of American intelligence and uh, the American oil companies at that time. So he was another one who had to be removed. Yes, they got rid of him. They tried to get rid of Castro many times as well. I think there were over 40 efforts to assassinate Fidel Castro. But he, and I spent a fair amount of time in Cuba, going back to my baseball playing days. Two of us from Colombia played on an American team that was invited down to Cuba in 19... 1960, two of us went to play, and I spoke the language, so I stayed on, and uh, a lot of fond memories of of Cuba and of Fidel. Not so much of Raul, who seemed to be always looking for angles, and I think has demonstrated an ability to be uh, persuaded by the wrong forces. But Fidel and Che were in a class by themselves. I didn't know Che Guevara well, met him, didn't know him well, but he was obviously very committed, very committed to liberty and independence of the people of Latin South America, as was Fidel. But Fidel managed to develop a a very strong security force and had great intelligence on the ground. So he was able to survive. Che was not. Che was, of course, assassinated as well, having been caught in Bolivia, leading a revolution there. So, so much (laughs) for... For revolutionaries and people like that, it's been uh, it's been a sad history for me to see someone like uh, Hugo Chavez disappear from the scene, have Martin King killed, Bobby Kennedy killed. It's uh, it's not it's a it's a realism that's difficult to deal with. And those who struggle through it and eventually take power are always tempted if to be corrupted themselves. And if they're not, then they're done away with. You know, I, I have a question for you if you have any recollection of this as well. If I recall correctly, the father of uh, Dodi Fayed 
Dodi Al-Fayed, who was dating Princess Diana. Were you working with him as well, doing an investigation into that? No, I never did that. Oh, okay. No, I, no. I, I I was in London. I was living back and forth and living in London at the time. I had an office in London. And uh, was very, very suspicious of the death of Diana and how that came about, uh, allegedly from paparazzi uh, harassing her car. I didn't believe that for a minute. And I have friends who were close to royalty. I represented two members of the of the House of Lords, such as representation that they required, which is not much was more advisory than anything else. But I would get in from pieces of information that made me very uncomfortable about Diana's death. I didn't get involved in, in that case at all, but except through clients and colleagues and friends and who were more close, closely attached to the royal family than I was. I dated the daughter of the, of the American naval attaché to Great Britain, Noel Guiler, who would later go on and become close to, to my chagrin, to Richard Nixon. And I dated his daughter in London when I was there and would be president of his house many occasions. Yeah, so I've I've had an interesting period of time both there and uh, in America and in Africa, of course, as well. But uh, the case that took me the longest and the most commitment was the assassination of Martin King. I think we've we lost enormous potential in terms of his growth. He was just opening up his his eyes to how the world is run and how his country was run. And he had to overcome a father who worried about him continually when he was doing it. And uh, I think that was a great loss that we suffered in, in America, indeed in the world. But uh, that's the lesson of history, I'm afraid. I thank you so much for your your books and your continued effort and um, I'll do what I can to help promote and and bring uh, these books back into uh, into the conversation and um, just oh well, I thank you for that by the way yeah because there are very few people who <clears throat> who are aware or interested even in these historical events. But if we if we look upon them as lessons to be learned, they will enable us to have some foresight and some realistic approach to the sharing of power in this country, which is now very much in in I know I'm sure you follow American events, but the United States democracy has been going downhill. Since the, since the very early 1970s. And we are now starting to realize some of the bad fruit that was posted and enshrined back in those days. And uh, I'm afraid that we have difficulty here in the United States now and increasingly will with disinformation, misinformation, and... Uh, 
Well, it goes back to the Warren Commission. I mean, the killing of John Kennedy and then the cover-up and then the belittled anyone doing an honest research into saying, well, what actually happened here? When you look into that and then you get your distrust of the American justice system. And of course, once you look into the 67, 68 era, I just lost all respect for the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover in particular, who was, he he was running everything same similar to Alan Dulles right so here are these guys just saying we're in charge anybody else is, is killed and you know it's it's uh, awful they managed to take control of the Supreme Court of the United States which is uh, it's very well documented in a book by uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse Sheldon Whitehouse is someone you should interview if you get a chance Senator from Rhode Island he is the most aware, the most perceptive of how the the corporate powers have taken control of the country, and they're not uh, unashamed of it at this point. His book is called The Scheme, S-C-H-E-M-E, The Scheme, and he's shown how it uh, how it has developed since 19, around 1972 onward. And Trump is just a toy that they, they're capable of manipulating because of his ego and his narcissism. narcissism. So I think uh, we're in very bad shape in America. And I don't know who is or how we're going to get out of it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, there's Robert Kennedy Jr., but uh, I don't I don't to make of that. I almost feel that he's putting his, his life in danger just by even entering the arena. Well, he's, he is also, unfortunately, receiving support from uh, the, Trump, the Trump side of, uh, of politics in America. Roger Stone is heavily into him now at this point. And uh, some of Trump's people are surrounding him and trying to uh, push him forward. But that's only with a view, in my my estimation, to enhancing Donald Trump and splitting a ticket, taking away, using the Kennedy name and politics to take, uh, take away votes from Biden in 2024. Well, I should also mention that, um, among other things, you write some very good poetry, and you have a lot of anti-war poetry. Some of it was put to music with myself, and uh, I on your website, williampepper.com, I, I have it for free. Just You can click on it and listen to some of these poems, and you had lots more. I think we worked on 25, and you had a... A, a binder, a stack of anti-war poetry that you've been working over your lifetime. Are you still writing every now and then? I've been ill, but I I, I try to. I'm going to have some surgery. Some surgery is not not a big deal, but I'm going to have it. But yes, I try. I try to write from time to time as much as I can. And the the, the website, my email address is new addresses of recent years is William Pepper Law, L-A-W, at gmail.com. So anything you want to put on that website 
or put on that email address. Feel free to do it. I'm not a great correspondent, but you can you can certainly can use that. Any of your listeners could use that as well. Okay, very good. Right. So you mentioned that you are going to have some surgery. I got an email from Sean that says that you have a GoFundMe page there. Maybe people can chip in, and I'm certainly going to do that when I get off the phone from you right now. So I'm going to make a link to this GoFundMe page. There's a, a picture of, of you, recent photo it looks like, post-op support. So you have done so so much. We'll make links to all this. Please do, and please keep in touch. And let me know if you have any ideas or any anything that I can do to be to be useful. Well, first of all, I just looked up to all your good work. You're a real inspiration. So when I think of someone doing good research and agree with everything or disagree, it it just was always a pleasure and I always felt that I was learning something by, by you know by your footsteps of investigation and just trying to see what really happened what's what's the truth and let's look into that so you know anything you're doing I'm just interested in so I'm I appreciate you calling me I know we've called maybe once a year over you know when COVID happened nobody was doing anything so I was just uh, glad to hear you again and uh the fact that you mentioned you'd like to just come on and just talk again about your, your last book and see if you can't get some sales. And then also that if you are um, going in for surgery and I was just only too happy to help put a link up for the GoFundMe and we'll see what happens. But um, oh, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, I think it. so many people thank you for your good work with On the Martin Luther King trial, helping Saran in the early days there after Larry Teeter passed away. And, you, and it seems that, um, like like you mentioned, you kind of you're interested in the case, but talk me into it. And then once you meet people like James Earl Ray or Saran, you listen to them, and then you realize that they didn't do what they've said that the crime was, you know. And That's uh, right. and this goes on and on, and how many cases we don't know about. But at least with you being an author, then you can write out what happened in the trial your personal views, and then the investigation that went on, and we get to read that. And thank goodness we have those three books that you have, and the last one, uh, Orders to Kill, right? But, um, well, no, no oh, sorry, The Plot to Kill King is the last one. Orders to Kill was earlier, and I have all three, and, of course, Active State. And, you know, a title, Active State, you'd say, well, wait a minute, he, really? But when you go through the evidence... And like you said, it only took the jury seven hours of uh, deliberation to say that uh, James Earl Ray is not the... I mean, you go through all the evidence. I mean, it's just... It's incredible. They just hope people sleep through this and they don't look into it. They just take, right. take your word for it. And uh, it was on TV, so... Yeah, all right, Bill. Right. Well, for now... Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Len. It's, it's, uh, it's my, my pleasure to talk with you and... Thank you for all your support and your your help in every way. Yeah. And uh, do, do try to keep in touch. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for taking part okay. today. And it's My always pleasure. a pleasure. Thank, thank you for all your help. Lynn. All right. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Okay. Good night.